We were all excited about the Ohio budget as it came into focus earlier this week. And then late yesterday afternoon, we find out that the 3% income tax cut that we were told about is really much bigger for the rich people in the state. We're talking about it on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and our chief political writer, Seth Richardson. Happy Wednesday, all. Should be a little cooler today, more comfortable. Please, please. Yeah, maybe relatively speaking. I'm a big guy, so anything above 80 is just a little too much. Well, let's make people uncomfortable in another way. Let's get started and talk about this tax cut. (laughs) When is a 3% Ohio income tax cut really a much bigger tax cut for some? Seth Richardson, this kind of is a jaw-dropping story because of the way the state budget was presented as the Senate and the House came together uh, and they talked about how they compromised on a tax cut. One wanted five, one wanted two, and it's a 3% across the board, but it's not. Yeah, for months it's been billed as that, right? 3% across the board for everybody, this kind of uniform tax cut, so to speak. But, you know, with provisions in the budget, uh, you know, if Mike DeWine signs them into law, it would eliminate an entire income tax bracket, the top income tax bracket, as well as lower some of the top brackets as well. So, you know, you can, they can use this 3% buzzword, but for instance, um, you know, when you when you kind of do the math here, uh, taxable income above two hundred twenty one thousand three hundred dollars would see a sixteen point eight percent tax cut An income between one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars and two hundred twenty one thousand three hundred dollars would see a nine point six percent tax cut. So what that essentially like functionally means is that the richest one percent in the state are going to be getting. Uh, you know, by some measures, a $5,400 tax cut compared with kind of the middle income Ohioans who are going to get about $50 a year. And it, you know, it, it's, I guess maybe it shouldn't be surprising that it turned out this way, but it, it's certainly not billed as, or it's not as it was billed. Yeah, I, I, it, all through this budgeting process, especially with uh, the, um, the Senate, or, or I guess it was with the House, they kept putting things in that target the poor. You know, at one point you were going to have SNAP benefits denied to anybody that had a $7,000 vehicle or one worth anything more than that. Uh, they, they wanted to deprive the broadband uh, spreading to, to underserved areas. They were going to try and cut that off. Uh, and a lot of that stuff came out, as we've discussed. But the idea of creating a tax cut that that is so much smaller percentage wise for the poor than it is for the rich it boggles the mind. And did they really think they'd get away with it without anybody noticing? Well, I mean, they, I guess they kind of did in a way, right? <laughs> they, they passed this and it's going to DeWine's uh, desk and he's got kind of limited time to decide what to do with it. And I guess, I guess we should add in here that, um, you know, for the, for the bottom earners in Ohio, uh, they're going to raise the bottom tax bracket from twenty two thousand one hundred and fifty to twenty five thousand dollars, which means that you know an additional one hundred twenty five thousand Ohioans wouldn't have to pay uh, state income tax under this plan. But I, I do it, it's it's an odd move but, in a but, way because you know they they say they want to do this to make the state more attractive and make it you know better for development and whatnot. But, you know, this is an income tax. This isn't like, you know, this isn't based on corporate taxes. And it, it, it does sort of strike me as odd, like that this is the move that you're saying, hey, this is what's going to bring development. At the same time, you do have, you know, you did have 
port, you know, portions of the of the budget that were, you know, eventually removed about, uh, you know, some infrastructure things like the, you know, the broadband but, but, being but, the biggest. But 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 back up. The 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 income tax is often talked about as progressive. And mm-hmm. in in normal terms, progressive means the rich pay more. Yeah. And what Ohio's doing is making it progressive that the richer you are, the bigger your tax cut is. That wasn't anybody's idea yeah. of what a progressive income well, tax and, is and supposed I think, to be. I think Jeremy Pelzer has done a good job of pointing out that it does seem kind of like, uh, you know, the, the beginning moves of an end run of sorts to kind of turn the state into a flat tax state. That That does sort of seem to like, you know, this doesn't quite do that, but it certainly seems like a first step toward that way by, you know, eliminating all these uh, uh, upper or giving all these breaks to upper tax brackets. Like eventually, yeah, I think you could see in Ohio just kind of a flat tax across the board. Yeah, I think. Well, we'll see. It was a, it's a good story. Jeremy Pelzer has it on Cleveland.com. Check it out. It's this week in the CLE. How fair is it for Ohio to be able to sue Volkswagen for its emissions scandal a few years back? Jane Cahoon, what Volkswagen did back then was truly sinister. I mean, they cooked their tests and were their cars were churning pollutants into the air in ways that is quite illegal and did a lot of damage. So I, th- this isn't about Volkswagen being a victim, but it, it's an interesting situation where They've already paid a pretty big amount of money to the United States government, but now Ohio can go after it. What's the latest development here? Right. Well, uh, you're right. Volkswagen would say this, in fact, isn't fair because they've already paid out nearly $15 billion in this 2016 settlement uh, that, you know, resulting from this cheating on, on the emissions test. That included, by the way, $13 million for the state of Ohio, as well as offering compensation of at least $5,100 each to nearly 14,000 Ohioans who bought or leased Volkswagen and Audi diesel-powered vehicles in model years 2019 to 2015. But um, anyway, you're right. The court opened the door by saying that Ohio could further hold Volkswagen accountable, even though they've they've settled this and and paid all this all this money. So the court ruled six to one that they can the state of Ohio can pursue hundreds of billions of dollars in penalties uh, from this cheating scandal. And it all stems from a suit that Mike DeWine, when he was attorney general, um, you know, at the time of the scandal, he filed against Volkswagen for tampering, not just with the new cars, but but through recalls and updates, used cars that were already being driven on Ohio roads. And that suit seeks $25,000 per day of noncompliance for each of the 14,000 vehicles sold in Ohio. So that could reach like $350 million per day or over $100 billion per year over a multi-year period, according to Volkswagen's appeal in this case. But as I said, the Supreme Court, in a decision that was written by Justice Pat Fisher, dismissed Volkswagen's argument that the the Clean Air Act gives the federal government exclusive power to to regulate auto manufacturers, not the states. Uh, He said the Clean Air Act only prevents states from regulating new motor vehicles or new motor vehicle engines, not used ones. Uh, and he, he basically said it doesn't matter if they already paid these federal penalties. There, there was one dissenting ju- justice, Michael Donnelly, who, who said that the, the, he thought the penalty was just way too high and imposing that uh, steep penalty could, 
cause manufacturers to go out of business and might have the immediate uh, negative effect of making them unable to pay penalties and, you know, wiping out jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but I, I actually, so what if they go out of business? What they did was despicable. They they really did do harm. And think about Northeast Ohio, how many times we have air quality alerts because of what's in our yeah. air. That's why and we have to think do about, check. <laughs> right, and think about the number of people who have breathing problems because of the pollutants in the air. And Volkswagen, in, a, in one of the most greedy, sinister moves an auto company has ever done, pumped cars out onto the streets to spew that stuff into the air. So Ohio is aggrieved. I mean, Ohio does have a legitimate claim. Is 13 million enough to pay for all the suffering we've seen uh, from from the result of what they did? So um, I, I, I'm sure Volkswagen thinks this is unfair, but it seems like well, yeah. I, just to, and I'm not certainly not defending them. I, I agree with you, but they did point out, or they said that through various settlements and US EPA penalties, Ohio and its residents have received or will receive more than $343 million in consumer relief, $71 million in environmental mitigation, and $36 million in compensation to dealers. Uh, which adds up to about $33,000 per affected vehicle in Ohio. So that's why they were trying to, uh, that's how they were trying to defend themselves. And they, they also were trying to make a broader argument, not just about them being victimized, but that this could cause regulatory chaos for the auto industry and might open them up to lawsuits from other states and local governments. Um, Except, but except, I know you don't feel too sorry for well, that. Well, <laughs> I mean, look, if you if you put airbags into a car that it turns out that that are defective, they replace them. It wasn't intentional. What they did was intentional. They I mean, this was one of the biggest scandals that you've ever seen because they did it intentionally. They intentionally poisoned the air everywhere they sold the car. So it's they, you, you can claim it's going to going to affect the industry, but the rest of the industry hasn't done this. And if some and if somebody else in the industry intentionally does something like this, well, then they should go out of business because they're they can't be trusted. So I also yeah. do, don't I remember that that when they provided the compensation to the car owners, wasn't it in the form of like discounts or something? I mean, I don't think they wrote checks of fifty one hundred dollars to each person that had bought a Volkswagen. I thought it came in terms of you know, some maintenance yeah. and some other things. So you're testing me there. I don't, I really don't yeah. remember. So but I guess what I'm doing your, is uh, you are correct. Ra- it was in the I'm raising doubts. And- I'm raising doubts about their claim of how much they've paid. Go ahead, Seth Richardson. Uh, I'm sorry. I was just saying you are correct. It was in the form of discounts and things like that. Yeah. That's not the same as providing cash. So, yeah. well, Dave Good. Yost, who's now the attorney general is poised. He says to seek justice. Well, go get them, Dave Yost. Our <laughs> air needs to be cleaner. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How are state legislators giving local leaders the ability to control development of large-scale wind and solar farms? Laura Johnston, we just talked about how we're, we're excited we're going to go after Volkswagen for poisoning our air. But in this, in this story, the legislators are trying to stop us from having clean air by giving the ability to regulate clean energy, which is interesting because they don't let local government regulate uh, uh, natural gas drilling. What's new? I was thinking that, too, that this actually gives some power back to local governments. It's the opposite of what we usually talk about when we talk about the legislators uh, usurping home rule power. So this gives 
power to the counties to designate exclusion areas where large wind and solar film farms cannot be constructed. The bill actually spells out county commissioners, but it would apply in Cuyahoga and Summit counties where we have an executive if somebody wanted to put a wind or solar farm in here. But it basically lets the county say, nope, you propose this project. We don't want it built. Even if the landowner wants it built, uh, they have to have a public meeting on the project, relevant information provided. And even if it's underway right now, if it doesn't meet a certain threshold within 30 days of this law taking effect, they can say, stop, you're done. Uh, solar tr- projects are a little bit easier grandfathered in as long as they have met these application requirements of the PJM interconnection, which is a regional authority. But this is, yeah, it it seems like a blow against clean energy. Wind is kind of stalled in Ohio. Solar, though, has been on the rise, and and this might put a kink in that. We we need to do a follow-up story on this about how they're talking out of both sides of their mouth because Mm -hmm. it's a double standard. They, They went hard 15 years ago or so at removing the ability of local government to decide where natural gas drilling goes. Yeah, um, it was ugly. And, and well, fracking came after that. First, right. it was just drilling. Then came the fracking. They, they took away the ability for, of local government to stop it. So how do you do that, which is, you know, far more. Because uh, this is clean energy, Chris. We only yeah, want but, the dirty energy in Ohio. But I, I don't understand how you can have the double standard in well, no, the and Ohio legislature so they can talk out of both sides of their mouth all the time. Um, I loved when they said earlier this week that they have a process they follow for legislation when they were cramming things into the budget. Uh, <laughs> and they both both sides of this issue say they're arguing for property owners' rights. They're saying, you know, the proponents of the bill say that it's necessary to protect the rights of property owners who never anticipated having wind or solar farms as neighbors. And everybody who, you know, um, opposes the law said they want the property owners to have the rights to put what they want on their own land. So, yeah, I mean, I actually think this is the right thing. I think giving local government the chance to look at projects and decide whether they will interfere with other property owners is the right way to go. But but that was the argument we made with natural gas. And the legislature mm-hmm. said, no, 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 no. Lo- local government can't do this. We'll have a hodgepodge it, of, of regulations. One other thing is it requires the Power Siting Board, which is the statewide board that looks at these projects, to include members representing the county and township when it makes decisions, which they should do that for every project. Right, exactly. It's a fascinating double standard. We'll continue to analyze it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Ohio going the boring safe route that financial experts recommend with the windfall of coronavirus aid it received from the federal government? Jane Cahoon, the spending of this money isn't sexy at all, but it's probably the right thing to do, right? That was a great introduction. Now people are really going to want to hear what I have to say about it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Ohio is going to use more than half of the money that it's getting this year from the latest federal coronavirus aid package to repay a $1.5 billion federal loan to cover uh, all these unemployment claims that that were filed during the pandemic, which really overwhelmed the state. And um, so this was in House Bill 168, which Governor Mike DeWine signed on Tuesday. And in addition to that $1.5 billion to pay off the loan, it appropriates a total of $756 million more for local economic recovery initiatives. So we did find out a little bit more about 
how that breaks down their water and sewer grants and as well as pediatric behavioral health care facilities. So all of that totals 2.2 billion of the 2.7 billion Ohio is supposed to get this year from this relief package. And DeWine says he plans to talk with state lawmakers about how to spend the remaining 500 million of that 2.7 billion. Are you with me? And then next year, they're going to get another 2.7 billion. Um, He said, uh, you know, (laughs) well, first of all, this bill really didn't have much opposition, you know, which is interesting because the coronavirus relief package was totally passed by Democrats over Republican objections in Congress. But DeWine, you know, was diplomatic uh, yesterday. He said, whatever one thinks about the bill that was passed by Congress, I'm not going to get into all that, but this is one-time money and it's coming to the state of Ohio and we need to be good stewards of the money, et cetera. Um, So, you know, um, as we've said before, that this, um, the paying off the loan is really going to help employers who won't be burdened by that debt. And, um, you know, as I said, the the extra money for the local governments, it's going to be 422 million for 2,000 local governments, uh, you know, that haven't yet received any direct federal assistance, another 250 million to for grants for counties, townships, and municipal governments for water and sewer projects, which uh, DeWine says is badly needed. And then uh, $84 million for, as I said, these pediatric behavioral health care facilities, which were already struggling to meet demand. But over the past 15 months, the problem's gotten worse as more youth have experienced uh, mental health crises. So, so that's where all this money's going. But they do owe a staggering sum of money for unemployment and wiping mm-hmm. that out makes great sense. And, you know, yeah. maybe more governments like Cuyahoga County, you should think about wiping out debt. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. In Rocky River, in Bay Village, in Chagrin Falls, in Brunswick, week by week, people are showing up at school board meetings to scream at their school board members about something called critical race theory. Seth Richardson, you're working on a long-term story about this. Where is all this rage coming from? Well, it, it, it actually sort of originates, of course, as all things in you know Republican politics tend to do with Donald Trump. But it, it's, it is more complex than that, right? This has become kind of the uh, prevailing wedge issue that looks like it's going to be here at least for a little while. You can barely go a day without seeing a tweet about it from you know a, a Republican politician on Twitter. But I, I, I think the thing that is most important kind of to point out about this is sort of what you said, right? That this isn't just, you know, this is, it's a very broad strategy that has been happening where um, they're attacking critical race theory, which is this really kind of nebulous concept in a way. There's no clear defined, you know, curriculum for critical race theory. Kids aren't taught this in high school. And nobody's even really proposing that they be taught this in, um, grade school or high school or anything like that. But because it's become such this this buzzword and associated with even more buzzwords, it's really worked a lot of people into a frenzy. And you're starting to see kind of some uh, similarities to the, uh, the, the Tea Party of 2010, right? But just sort of based around this wedge issue as opposed to economics. And, you know, I think for the foreseeable future, at the very least, you're going to see Republicans really playing on this critical race theory because what do you like what do you have happen in politics where it's easy to say critical race theory and say that somebody is against it but when you're explaining you tend to be losing and critical race theory well, is well, kind of I, a I guess but the question is 
What are they really protesting against? What do they think is going on in greater Cleveland classrooms? It's, yeah. it, this is all predicated on this notion that's false about what's being taught to children. Yeah. And, you know, the poor school board members are getting blasted. This is all that the, there's been there's been lots of research done on how this came about. And this really was masterminded by a very small group of people mm-hmm. who wanted to create a wedge issue. What's striking is that people in Rocky River, Bay Village and Chagrin Falls are are so easy to manipulate where they show up at their school boards furious without really knowing what is happening in their classrooms. I mean, teachers teach. They, they, they have lessons they teach. There's, there's, there's nobody in greater Cleveland that's teaching students what these people believe they're being taught, and yet they're showing up in, in fury to berate their school board members and now running for school boards because they want to yeah. bring rigor to the curriculum. Uh, it's a fascinating it's fascinating to me that so many people can be so easily manipulated. So I kind of look at it as a natural evolution of sorts, right? When, you know, you look at the issue of critical race theory and yeah, it's this thing that has sprung up in the past year, year and a half. But when you really look over the past, you know, decade plus, there's been a real concerted attempt, especially by conservatives to attack academics and to attack colleges and to attack, you know, uh, liberal indoctrination, quote unquote, right, which is sort of what they say is happening at these colleges. And, you know, th- this is kind of a spillover of that where they're, you know, basically making the they're, they're basically saying that, oh, these, you know, uh, uh, liberal academics are trying to indoctrinate our, our school kids as young as, you know, five, six and seven to basically hate America is what they're saying. And, you know, that is not what critical but it's race not theory true. is. And, that, yeah, it's, and it it's doesn't not make what it sense. Is. Right. But, you know, if you know, if you're a if you're a parent and you don't know what critical race theory is, all you know is kind of what you've heard on whether it be Life. Fox what News credible, or Twitter. Yeah. What that, credible source are you hearing it from that so inflames your passions that as you come out of the pandemic and can finally leave your house, your, your mission is to go to your school board and yell at the school board members? That, that doesn't make any sense. Well, I think that's a carryover of kind of, you know, basically what we've seen as far as the past, again, like the past decade, who is a credible source, right? It's become so fractured over the past, you know, again, decade plus where, you know, it's it, it's not like the old times where, hey, these are like these are very clear, credible sources. There are, you know, for lack of a better term, charlatans out there who are, you know, now deemed credible sources by people, the, you know, talking heads of the world or anything like that. Uh, certain, you know, websites or even disinformation campaigns on Facebook. Right. People take a lot of their information off of Facebook and social media that is you know, obviously false, not right. peer reviewed so, or anything like that. So right. talk radio. Right. We got to want to. Got to wind it down, Seth, so we're going to run out of time. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the rules for restaurants and food service businesses that want to get a piece of the $100 million that has been set aside to help COVID-impacted hospitality businesses? Laura Johnson, we've been talking about this. We've mentioned that these places have not been able to get the money before now. Suddenly, there is an availability. There is. It's $100 million, and it aims to help the restaurants still struggling after the pandemic. That $100 million will be doled out on a first-come, first-served basis, no deadline. Applications open Tuesday. In order to get some of the money, restaurants have to have at least one location in Ohio since before December of 2019. That can be restaurants, food service contractors, caterers, breweries, wineries, 
mobile food services, bars, nightclubs. Uh, those businesses have to have experienced at least a 10% reduction in sales and revenue in 2020, which you think that'd be pretty easy to meet that bar. And then the grant amounts will be commensurate to the percentage of the lost revenue. Mark Bona wrote this story, and this included a stat I hadn't seen yet. 3,000 restaurants closed in Ohio during the COVID pandemic. That's a pretty big number. Wow. Yeah, it is a big number. It's uh, it's staggering how much went out of business, although you're seeing new ones start to pop up now. So it seems like some of the food service people during the pandemic were planning how to come out of it. Yeah, there's uh, like a good. new haunted restaurant over by you that that people got really excited about on online yesterday. Yeah, which will crowd that intersection and make it almost impossible to get through it. Very exciting. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is it so hard to find a T-shirt in Cleveland? Laura Johnston, you picked up on this a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, that, that you were noticing that there were a lot of people saying, hey, if you want the shirt, you better get it now. I can't get them. Why? Why can't we get T-shirts? I mean, it's the same supply problem that we're seeing with a lot of industries, but I think it's a really interesting one for the summer. Now that we have all these events back happening, people, you know, have a t-shirt that goes with their race or their family reunion or whatever, and people can't order these right now because it's so hard to find sourcing for all of them. I, I talked to a small business, you know, they do custom shirts for their own, own line, and they have no mediums, no larges in stock. If you want an extra, extra small or a 2XL, like go ahead and go shopping. But otherwise, this is their busy season. They go to the festivals and the fairs and the art shows and they don't have inventory. It could take six months to get what they're looking for, even though they're they're looking for um, new new providers. But it's you know, a lot of it is made overseas. They had factories that were shut down during the pandemic. Shipping is still a problem. I mean, it, it seems like every year. Every spot of the production from getting the yarn to getting it in a truck and delivered has been delayed. I mean, there are T-shirt makers in America and there mm -hmm. are textiles that are provided in America. Are you just saying that the bulk of it comes from elsewhere and then that, that's all been blocked? Yeah, I mean, even if everything is made in America, which it's probably fairly rare, there, there are shipping delays. And, you know, maybe people are now that everybody's having these events again, they ordered all of the stuff again. So the demand is up. Um, Cleveland Printware said they had a 350 piece order. They're getting suppliers from seven different warehouses across the country. So even that is just a lot more work to find it all. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Governor Mike DeWine going to sign the budget in time to keep Ohio operating? Jane Cahoon, I put this question on here so we could speculate on what he might line item and veto. I think everybody has something. I, I, I'm going to project that he will not line item and veto the tax cut that greatly favors the rich in Ohio. But is he going to sign it? Are we going to have a budget? Oh, yes, he most definitely is. He said he's going to sign it before the deadline of midnight tonight. Uh, we, of course, hope that that's this afternoon as opposed to tonight because, you know, we might want to finish our workday. But he he would not get into specifics of what he might or might not use his line item veto to, to strike down. He, but he said he's generally happy. He was really pretty upbeat about this $74 billion budget. Uh, he said it's a good budget and invests in our kids and in the future. And we'll have more to say about it tomorrow. That's what he said yesterday. So, um, you know, uh, he also pointed out like this is different from when he served in Congress when they rarely had a budget and, and it was always, you know, continuing resolutions. But just to bring in a little history here, 
his DeWine's first budget as, as governor two years ago, he issued 25 line item vetoes, and that included um, uh, some health care provisions. I think they might have dealt with Medicaid. I'm not sure. As well as one late addition that would have cut property taxes for rich people in Hunting Valley, but we won't go into all, all of that. But um, so he, those were quite a few vetoes. I don't know, you know, some of them tend to be kind of boring, but so I, I have no idea how many we'll get to this time. But but two years ago, that, that was the year that lawmakers blew past the deadline and they had to pass this temporary spending measure as like a like a Band-Aid measure. But that's not going to happen this time. He says he'll 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 be ready. So, um, you is know, there anything it, in it that is you think he would find particularly offensive or egregious that you would bet highly that he would veto? Or is it really just a mystery as to where he'll go? So with it? here's one thing that I'm really intrigued to see what he's going to do with this. I think it has the potential uh, for him to veto it. It's it's this controversial provision that would allow um, doctors and medical providers to refuse to provide services if doing so would violate their conscience as informed by the moral, ethical, or religious uh, beliefs or principles. So, you know, um, that that has some stiff opposition from Ohio's major associations representing hospitals, doctors, and health insurance providers. And DeWine, you know, listens to those people. He listens to a lot of different people. But, uh, and then, you know, the human rights campaign says this is going to lead to discrimination against you know, LGBTQ people and, um, and it you flies know, in and, the face of the Hippocratic oath. I mean, doctors yeah. are not supposed to do that. They're supposed to help. So, right. Um, so they're, they're saying it could lead to situations where, where patient care is compromised. That's what this letter that, you know, was sent to budget negotiators by like the Ohio hospital association, the Ohio children's hospital association, Ohio state medical association, and the Ohio association of health plans. So that I'm really, really curious to see what he what he does. You know, I know he believes in religious freedom greatly, but, you know, there's a there's a conflict here. So, and okay. you know, you're right. He's not going to veto the tax cuts or the or the, you know, some of that other stuff that Democrats want him to veto. OK, we'll see later today whether that happens. You're listening to this week in the CLE. All right. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Seth Richardson. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with another discussion of the news.